We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries and separate fact from fiction. So I know I've been slacking on the story of the weeks this week, but we actually got something really good, really important, really interesting to talk about real quick. So basically, there's a, a video that had leaked on the internet of a triangle-shaped object gliding through the sky. And this was not just some random video on iPhone from YouTube. This video was shot by a U.S. Navy pilot, and it was taken in night vision. And basically, it was like I said, it was a triangle, a triangle-shaped object, um, but floating in the sky. He said he's flying. And he sees this object and said, there's no training mission, which they love to say, no training mission going on. There's no kind of weather balloon, which they love to say, too. There's nothing going on to where they can give an excuse for this. And like I said, there's no military explanation for this. And then the U.S. government comes out this week, the Pentagon comes out this week and says that this is actually authentic footage. Now, no, they're not saying that this is aliens. They're not saying this is a spaceship. They are saying we confirm that a Navy pilot took this video of a triangular object near him in the air that's not from us. We assume it's not from China or from some other country. It's not from us. And it is not doctored. It is not fake. It is an actual authentic video. So you can take with that information whatever you want. But if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, I've been telling you time after time after time that we start getting more and more information. And it sounds so redundant, I keep saying it. But like I said, this is not like I said, this is not the proof that aliens or whatever exist. But we have finally gotten to the point, and it took forever, that the government is not even trying to lie anymore. Because the weather balloon excuse was always garbage, and the military training exercise excuse was all absolute garbage. But that's what they were running with ever since the Roswell, New Mexico crash. So now it's gotten to the point where they are at least saying, okay, this is not our aircraft, and the video is actually authentic. It's not fake. And if you've done any kind of tracking on the history of UFOs, you know that that is a big deal because they love to lie and give you that weather balloon or training exercise excuse, but that is going out the window. So like I said, we're not there yet. We're getting close. But the fact that the government is now just coming out and saying, yes, this is a unidentified flying object. They like I said, UFO, we say means alien, but in the government terms, it just means it's a object flying and we don't know what it is. They're confirming that it's something that's not ours and it's not a fake video. Like I said, that is the next step. We gotten finally the government, and they lie all the time. So we finally got to the point where they stopped lying about what UFOs are. So they've acknowledged that UFOs are out there. That's something they didn't claim. So now the next step is for them to actually explain what the UFO is. And like I said, we have, regardless of political affiliation, whatever you think of him, we have Senator Marco Rubio of Florida who is out there, and you have to agree with him, like I said, other politics aside, he's not saying that they're aliens. All he's worried about is, okay, should we not be more concerned that there are things flying in the air that are not ours? Could it be China? Could it be Russia? Are we being spied on? Like, 
I understand where he's coming from. Like, he's not just an alien person, but he's trying to figure out, okay, is this national security? Like, we got things flying over us, over our military bases, but nobody seems concerned to figure out what it is. So, like I said, we got people like him and other people of both sides out there pushing to get more information. And eventually there's going to be enough pressure, except me screaming, people on YouTube screaming is not going to get anything accomplished. But eventually it's going to get to the point where people that actually are in power are going to start asking enough questions and we'll start getting actual legit answers. Like I said, it could take time. It may not, it's probably not going to be this year. It's already April. It's probably not going to be this year. But as time goes on, like I said, it'll start trickling information just a little by little by little. But like I said, the progress we are making is really, really good. And like I said, I look forward to following this journey with you on tracking just as much information that comes out. And I said, I'll always cover it in my story of the week. If there's anything new, I will cover it. So you don't even have to Google UFO of the week story. I, if there's always something, I will cover it. And that way we have the timestamps on whenever this big magical alien drop information, whatever we're going to call it, that ever happens, we have the timestamps. You remember, you listened to Patrick Simpson ramble about aliens back in 2020 and 2021. But I'm going to get off that little rant now because I'm really excited about this story today. So we're interested in this story today. So let's go ahead and discuss the actual topic. So over the course of this podcast, we've talked about a lot of things. And particularly, we've talked about a lot of bad people. We've talked about cult members, leaders of cult members that have led people down the wrong way, talked about the Lee Harvey Oswalds of the world, assassins of the world, all kind of people that have or allegedly allegedly have done a bunch of bad things. And I honestly don't like talking about it in a sense. Like I feel like a lot of podcasts that cover it actually like enjoy it or get excitement from it. And I really don't. But it is history, and in a sense, I consider these type of topics educational, especially the type of topic we'll talk about today and similar type topics. But there are lessons, not that sometimes there's nothing you can do. A lot of times there's nothing you can do. But always to be aware of your surroundings, always to trust your instinct. You get weird vibes from people. You have instincts and something's off with your family member. And I feel like today's a really good lesson in to trust those instincts. And unfortunately, sometimes when you trust your instincts, it's still not good enough. And in this case, that might have been the case. But either way, said it is history. It is something that happened. So I'm going to discuss it. And it really is chilling, said. I've known about this case for a while, but even just going back through it, doing some reading today, like it legit sent chills down my spine. I still got chills now. It's just pretty crazy to think about. Wouldn't recommend listening to the, if you're like a, I don't know, scary person or whatever, definitely wouldn't recommend listening to this at like 10 o'clock at night or something. If you're like a scary type person, it's not that bad, but it is, like I said, it is a pretty chilling episode. And so we're going to basically start with 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. 
and she was an Alaskan, 18-year-old Alaska teenager. She worked at a basically a small little coffee shop. Just it wasn't even a store. It was just a little, basically like a little local shack that she was working by herself at the time. And unfortunately, she ended up going missing. And it turned into this wild case that we'll obviously discuss. But what comes out of that case, they did solve it, which is good news. They did solve it. But in solving this case, they stumbled upon probably, I'm not probably, definitely one of the most evil people to ever walk on this earth. And the sad part is we don't even have all the answers. Because, like I said, it's spoiler alert. He committed suicide in prison before we really got any kind of answers. So the mystery still arises as far as what all was he involved in. And, like I said, this is a not a popular story. You may have never heard of this. So we're just going to dig straight into it. Try to maybe figure a couple of things out by ourselves. This is the story of Israel Keys. So we go back to the night of February 1st, 2012, and we are in Anchorage, Alaska, and we have said an 18-year-old by the name of Samantha Koenig. She's local to the area, and she's a barista at the Common Grounds Espresso Hut, and which is in the parking lot of a, basically a fitness center. But it's just like it's not even like a store you can go inside. It's just literally like a small little kiosk with the worker in it. You kind of just go by, order your coffee and go about your way. But it was snowing super hard that night. So even though it wasn't like in the middle of nowhere, it was kind of hard. It wasn't just in a place where people could see pretty easily. So. The hut, I think, closes at about 8 o'clock, and he, he gets there slightly before then, and um, Samantha is wearing long sleeve lime green shirt, which her family say is her favorite color. Like I said, it's just a small little hut, so she's working by herself, and she set the clothes. And this man that we're going to get dig into a little bit later by the name of Israel Keys, but we don't know. They don't obviously don't know his name at the time, but he walks up wearing a ski mask and he walks up to the window and he asks for an Americano coffee. So Samantha turns around, makes the drink, turns back around and hands the cup to keys at the window. And that is when he points a gun at her demanding money. Keys then tells her to shut the lights off, which she did. And the light switch was actually right next to the panic button on their security system. But unfortunately, Samantha did not press it. And we got to said, you don't know what you're going to do when you're in these situations. Everybody's like, press the button. And it seems like common sense. But when someone has a gun at you, you don't know what they're going to do if they realize you press the button. So it's, it's, you can't judge someone in that situation. But the button right is there. But like I said, we assumed that she was too 
afraid to hit the panic button, which would have alarmed someone that she was in trouble. So after that, Keys orders Samantha to get on the floor, which she did. He climbs through the window into the coffee stand and basically ties her hands with zip ties and basically kind of stands by, waits until closing. It was right before closing time, but he waits and keeps her down on the ground until eight o'clock just to make sure no last minute customers come in. Keys then asked Samantha if she had a car and she said she did not. And the truth is, she was telling the truth. Her boyfriend was actually coming to pick her up at close, um, which we'll talk to about in a second. But like I said, her, her hands are tied, so he and he ties her legs, and he basically drags her outside. And eventually on camera, once they do some digging, the two are seen basically walking west towards the, the Denali the Denali Street crosswalk. Like I said, it's I guess late at night. It's a snowstorm, so not many people are out. Um, it's really just like a perfect storm. Like I said, if this was obviously during the daytime or even nicer weather, there's probably someone around to see this, but there's really nobody out. But um, Samantha actually did, does break away from her zip ties and tries to run away. But Israel Keys chases and tackles her, then puts his arm around her and basically takes his gun out and puts it to her ribs. So and said, despite all this going on, nobody reported seeing anything strange. I got to assume she screamed for help. Maybe I don't. It doesn't say. But like I said, she gets free a little bit, takes off running. He tackles her and puts the gun back to her body and said, nobody sees anything. It's just a perfect timing type of night like i said and then he tells her if she tries to get away again or tries to do anything he would shoot her and so she finally complies and they go to his car and like i said he's basically keeping trying to keep her calm he convinces her that he only wants a ransom like he's not going to kill her as long as the family comes up with the money he wants he just wants to get his money and he will let her go. And so he seems pretty adamant about that. So she starts to cooperate, believing that she does what she says, what he says. And then the parents give the ransom money that she'll eventually go free. Now, all this happened in the span of about 12 minutes. Remember, the boyfriend, her boyfriend is coming to pick her up. They close at eight o'clock. So I guess she tells him she still has to do the cleaning and closing. So he's scheduled, I guess, to get there at about 8.30, or he may have been running late. But at about 8.30, and this is about 15 minutes after the abduction is complete, we see on surveillance video that Samantha's boyfriend arrives in a pickup truck. He walks around the stand once, sees that she's not there, and he basically just drives away, um, assuming maybe she walked or... Parents ended up picking her up, but he does a quick walk around um, and doesn't see her there. Also on the video, you can see that Samantha's cell phone is left inside and is lighting up as she receives text messages and calls from, we would assume, from her boyfriend is trying to figure out where she is. Now, according to the FBI, Israel Keys basically drives all around Anchorage 
lying to Samantha about this plot to get a ransom. Now, Samantha does tell him that her family doesn't have much money. So, you know, I don't know what you're trying to get from this, but we're not a very rich family. But Israel's whole plan is that he knows the community, especially a tight-knit community in Atlanta, or sorry, in Anchorage, in Alaska, is going to come together, the community is going to come together and put together this ransom. And that is exactly what happened over time. Said so over the couple of weeks that she was missing and people thought that she was just being held hap- captive, more than $70,000 was raised. At least that's what we know of. But in regards to that night, the big key of this whole plan is that cell phone, which we know was left in at the kiosk or at the coffee shop. He was going to use it to send Samantha's family text messages demanding money because how he doesn't know their numbers. She might not have their numbers memorized. So the he needed that phone to do the entire plan. But like I said, it was still left there. So this is the crazy part. So the adoption happens. They drive off. And then the boyfriend comes, pulls up not too soon after. He looks for her, can't find her. He drives off. So they said Israel Keys realizes that the cell phone's still there. So he drives back to the Common Grounds coffee shop at about 10.30 p.m. He breaks back inside while wearing a headlamp, trying to find the phone. And he grabs Samantha's phones and the plastic zip ties that he left behind. And the crazy part, again, all this is on video, is that he goes back to get the phone. And four minutes later, Samantha's boyfriend returns to look for her again. Now, like I said, there's a lot of weird, just crazy coincidence in here. But if you're the, and I remember, I think I watched a video of the boyfriend, like I said, you have, I guess, kind of a different versions of survivor's guilt, but you're the boyfriend, you're, you know, the protector or whatever. And when you learn this, it has to be devastating. You're 15 minutes, just when you miss her kidnapping, all that by 15 minutes. And then at about 1035, you come back to look for her and you're four minutes away from literally coming face to face with her kidnapper. And though that sounds crazy, it only gets crazier from there that night. So after he goes back and picks up her cell phone from the coffee shop, basically he drives to his actual home where he has a family. He has a wife and kids at this home. He goes home and he puts Samantha in a shed and later like I said, he gets her in the shed and he turns up the volume on the radio so that no one can hear Samantha if she screams inside the shed. So he puts her in the shed, turns up the music, and he leaves. He leaves her there. He leaves and he drives to Samantha's house because he needs the debit card, apparently. He says he needs her debit card, so she gives him her address. He and he drives to the house and the her debit card is apparently in the truck and the truck is at Samantha's house so he gets to Samantha's house he breaks 
into the pickup truck and takes her debit card. Now, here is the other crazy thing. He breaks into the pickup truck, steals his debit card. Her boyfriend is now back home. He can't find her. So he goes back home. Her boyfriend is in the house and sees Israel breaking in to the truck and yells at him. But Israel escapes when the boyfriend goes back inside to get help. And like I said, there's it's a different type of survivor's guilt. But I mean, for anybody really to be in this situation, but for it to be your girlfriend that you went missing and twice you go to the shop and you just miss him and then you see him. But you like say he obviously didn't know that was her kidnapper. He just thought it was just some random dude just breaking in the cars. So it happens in every neighborhood all the time. So there's no way he was going to be able to put the pieces together. But I know he looks back. He literally looked him dead in the eye, breaking into the car. He goes back in the house. Who knows? Maybe get a weapon or to call more people. And Israel Keys gets away. And all that happened on this night. Like I said, in February 2012, all this happened in one night. Like I said, I don't know if this guy is just lucky or a ninja or just good at what he does. But there was so many times that he could have been caught. And he was caught, actually. Like I said, that they come face to face with the boyfriend, but still manages to get away. So after that super close encounter, he leaves Samantha's house and goes back to his own where Samantha is in the shed. And basically, long story short, he basically assaults her and then eventually chokes her to death. Um, I think he put a, I know he hung, basically, basically he hung her, basically. Long story short. And the next morning, the very next morning, remember, he has, um, may not be a wife, might be a girlfriend, but he has a family. So the very next morning on February 2nd, he flies to New Orleans and boards a cruise ship that he had already had planned in advance, leaving Samantha's body in his shed. And he goes on a cruise and he returns to Alaska on February 17th. And he uses a typewriter to write a ransom ransom note demanding $30,000. And like I said, we're going to dig into this a little bit later. But I just have to talk about it just for a quick second. Because it's just insane. Like I said, there's a lot about this that's insane. But this is just absolutely insane. That he goes through all that that night, kills somebody, wakes up in the morning, and goes on a two-week cruise as if nothing happened. Like I said, it was set for him so he could have an actual alibi. I mean, he had everything set up, but that is just a different level of evil to pull something like that. And then the very, literally the very next day, go on a two-week cruise with your family as if absolutely nothing happened. Like, that just is just a, a level of evil that is just, it's hard for me mentally to comprehend. But like I said, he comes back on February 17th. He writes the ransom note. And this part is, uh, it just, there's just, there's no normal parts in this. So he gets back. He goes into the shed. He retrieves Samantha's body. And he takes steps to make it look like she was still alive. So basically, he sews, he sews her eyes open. And he puts makeup on her face. and. 
he takes a Polaroid picture of her tied up, but the photo also shows it um, basically is a picture of Samantha holding a picture of the Anchorage Daily News, the local newspaper, from February 13th, 2012. So basically, she's already passed away, and he basically, like I said, puts makeup on her, makes her look alive, and posts the day, that day's newspaper to make it look like, okay, she's still alive. There's still hope. We can get this ransom and get her back. And he leaves the note at a dog park under a memorial that was um, for some dog. I don't know this random, but he leaves it at a dog park for some reason. And eventually someone finds it and reports it to the police. Um, I think he also sent an actual text message on Samantha's phone to her boyfriend telling her where the note was. But there's real no reason why he chose the dog park. And over the next several days, he works on basically getting rid of the body and basically cuts a hole into the, I don't know the name, but it basically it's a lake and he puts her body into the lake and assumes that nobody's going to find her. Like I said, still believing, like I said, because they got, you see a picture of your daughter alive with the today's newspaper. So they believe you're still alive. So the family and the community comes together to get the ransom. And they deposit the money into her account. Like I said, he has the debit card. So the deal is you get the ransom. And I'm not going to meet you anywhere because, you know, we see on movies that never works. They always call the police. So you, they're going to deposit the ransom money into his account or into her account. And now that he has her debit card, he can withdraw it. But, of course, the police have a plan and they're going to try to track Israel Keys through the withdrawals made on the debit card. And as we have already learned, Israel Keys is not a dumb person, so he knows that they're going to be tracking. So he just doesn't. And of course, with debit card withdrawals, you can only take out depending on the bank. I think it was Bank of America. I think some maybe let you take out like two thousand on ATM, but you have ATM. You have different ATM things, so you can't. And he's not going to go inside the bank and do it. Um, so basically, he drives all around the West Coast just stopping at random ATMs and withdrawing money. I'm assuming a thousand to whatever the limit is, 2000 at a time. And like I said, this is 2012. If he did this today, he probably would have been caught immediately because you can get, you, like our technology is just different. But 2012, even though it's not that long ago, the online banking wasn't like automatic. Like if you had online banking, you submitted it, you made a payment, you wouldn't see it on your online banking until like 30 minutes after it wasn't as immediate now where like you can get like a text message the moment you send it so they're always like 10 to 15 minutes behind because it's just the way the technology was but like i said they at least have a path because like i said he's using it so they at least while they're not catching him they're at least seeing okay where he's driving where he's going and he eventually ends up in Texas. And thankfully, the Texas state authorities were on top of it and they said they knew what they were doing. And they started following Key's car after some withdrawals in Lufkin, Texas. And they were eventually able to track him down and learn that he was staying at a hotel in Lufkin. So 
Actually, I think a highway patrol officer, because he had rented a white Ford Focus, so he was not driving his truck around that he had. He had a white Ford Focus, which they eventually identified. And I think it was just a um, one random officer had finally saw it. Like I said, they had to be on the lookout. I think he finally saw it at the hotel, but um, Israel wasn't in there. So he wait, he sat and waited. Israel Keys gets in his the four focus and drives off. And then the patrol officer pulls him over for speeding, which I don't know if he was actually speeding or not. But I mean, seeing that he's trying to move on the mission, he probably actually was speeding or he just got him the moment he went one mile over the speed limit. I don't know. But the highway patrol officer pulls him over for speeding and hands him and asks him for his driver's license. And Israel Keys actually gives him his actual driver's license, which is an Alaska driver's license. And it is at that moment the highway patrol officer knows that this is actually the right guy. Like this is actually this is a he didn't have a fake ID, which is crazy. So at that moment he knew that he had him. And in the car, so he arrests him and in the car is Samantha's debit card, um like a ski mask and a bunch of other stuff, just basically proving that he was guilty on top of the fact that not too soon after getting arrested, Israel keys did confess to kidnapping Samantha. And he eventually does tell them that he murdered Samantha and where her body is. And crazy enough, he said he did not expect to get caught by using the debit card i guess he really thought i don't know if he's not i don't know it's weird like he's a smart guy but he somehow thought this debit card theory was going to work um but once he gets arrested like i said he's actually very talkative which is very rare only other person i know that really talks is ted bundy with his case but he's actually pretty open for the most part and start spilling a lot of disturbing information. Before he would talk, he tried to make a deal, a very unusual deal, with the FBI, mainly because he didn't want his daughter to know what he had done. So his deal was he would provide FBI details with his other murders if the government would agree to basically not make the details of his crime private and guarantee him an execution by lethal injection within like two weeks or something like that. He said he preferred death over life in prison, and he wanted to be executed as soon as possible. And they agree to these terms, at least I don't know if they actually really were going to follow through with it, but they agree to these terms, and he begins to talk. Next at this time, when they arrest him, they're thinking they got a guy that killed Samantha Colning, and it was just like a one-time thing. Like none of them expected the stuff that he was about to say. Now Israel Keys claims that he killed eleven people in total, and this is including Samantha. Um, these claims remain unconfirmed, but the most disturbing part about this is what his method was because 
serial killers, like I said, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And 99% of serial killers have a type. Like Ted Bundy, young blonde woman. Or some people go for men. Some people go for a specific age group. Some go for couples. Some go for older women. Whatever it is, most serial killers have a type. This guy did not have a type. He did not have a profile or anything. He On his list were men, women, children, old, young, thin, a little bigger, rich women, poor men. Like there was there was no profile on this thing. And he was not a local killer. This was not something that happened in just Anchorage, Alaska. So basically what he did is he would buy a one way ticket to a major city, rent a car and then drive thousands of miles. Hypothetically, if he's in Anchorage, he drives to Austin, Texas or San Antonio, Texas. And then he'll drive to like New York. So it's not somewhere that they could like even backlog. Okay, well, he flew to Austin. So we're going to think a death happened in Austin or whatever. He would drive like a thousand miles in the opposite direction before he did anything. Then what he would do is he would go to Home Depot. And basically he would get a Home Depot bucket. And in these Home Depot buckets were guns, ammo, ropes, money and Drano, which he would use to accelerate basically the decomposition of the body. So basically what he called these are kill kits. So like I said, he lives in Anchorage, Alaska. He was I'm just naming cities. But hypothetically, he drives to San Antonio. Or he flies to San Antonio, rents a car, and then like drives to New York somewhere completely different from where he flew into. And just randomly, there is no plan. There is no reason. There is no explanation. He will just see a yard. He will see a house and he will plant the kill kit there. Now, this is not, he wouldn't plant the kill kit and then kill somebody the next day. From what we know, he would plant a kill kit and he wouldn't, it would sit there for years in some instances. Two, one to two years and it just, when he got the itch again, he would go find the kill kit and then use it. And that's just, it's just, like I said, one of the most horrifying things that I've ever heard. And like I said, there's no profile, no person. It was basically just a crime opportunity. He was just, basically he said he chose that um, Common Grounds coffee place because they were open the latest. Like there's just no real victim reason or person that he's going after it was just crimes of opportunity and like i said he would just get an itch remember where he had a kit from a couple of years ago and basically the first person he saw that looked i guess vulnerable i'm sure he didn't just pick on men that he couldn't fight mainly older like i said i know a couple of them were older couples and younger woman so like i said he wasn't dumb. He picked on people that wouldn't be able to basically fight him off. And like I said, he he admits to 11 people in total, but he commits suicide on December 2nd, 2012, in the middle of all these interviews. 
like I said, he didn't just come out and say 11. They had to get one at a time, at a time. And he also hinted that there may have been more, but he wasn't going to tell them. He said he could have been playing with them. We don't know. Like I said, he commits suicide because, like I said, he wanted a quick death. He didn't want his daughter to see the information. So, like I said, they were dragging on the death penalty too long. So he commits suicide and he leaves a basically a crazy, weird suicide note, which I'm not going to read. You can look it up. Um, basically, things called like an ode. He like basically wrote a poem to murder, basically, like writing a poem to the actual cause of murder, um, which is like said, super weird. Thing is, like I said, even amongst the 11 that he admitted, we never got names. And that is what remains basically the unsolved mystery of this story. They, he admits 11, but we don't know who the other 10 are. I think we, he did admit one older couple that I think they identified, but most of the victims we don't know. Then right before he dies, he kind of hints that there may have been more. And like I said, if you're into the true crime world, specifically like podcasts like um, Crime Junkie, those type of podcasts, you do digging into different kind of stories and police officers or I guess investigators have hypothesized that their specific case they're working on could have been an Israel Keys case. Like I said, he this all this all happened in 2012, but this has been going on for years. Um, I think since 2000, the early 2000s, at least that's what he admitted, but we don't know what he did prior to that. But there's a lot of cases that happened in like 2010, 2011 that were near where he may have been. And like I said, it's sad because the there's lots of families out there that lost someone, a brother, sister, father, daughter, and they never got the justice they deserve because this coward took his life before they could do any kind of connections. Like I said, it doesn't, obviously doesn't bring that person back, but knowing, like I said, I just couldn't imagine losing someone and not knowing who did it and if that person's out there. Like I said, there's these people deserve justice. They deserve an answer and they're not going to get it, which is, like I said, really, really sad. But thankfully, said at minimum, he's not on this earth anymore. Like I said, it's a small victory. Like I said, we don't know how many lives he took. One is too many, but he's not on this earth anymore. Thank thankfully, the Texas police did catch him before he was able to continue on and do anything else. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, I don't enjoy talking about these. Like their history, I talk about it. It's technically like I said part unsolved mystery. So I'm going to talk about it, but I don't get joy out of talking about it. But one thing that I've learned, because I don't cover too much true crime on here. Some of them are true crime, but one of the number one things I've learned from true crime podcasts is to always, always trust your instinct. Don't be afraid to be rude sometimes when it comes to certain situations. Like I'm not talking about small things, but if you just have a weird vibe, don't be afraid to be rude. Like I said, in a situation like sometimes like he he saw 
his girlfriend's kidnapper. And, you know, he probably did the right thing in his mind. He really did do the right thing to go inside and probably call 911. But at the time that you can't find your girlfriend, like not saying he has to be a vigilante and necessarily go tackle him. But like I said, there's just certain details you could have maybe figured out or certain things about that person you could have stayed outside to get more information on. Like I said, even name is something like that. Like I said, sometimes it's just you get a weird vibe about a person and it could be a coworker or family member and something ends up happening. Like, don't be afraid to trust your instinct. Don't be afraid to be rude. Don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. So we only get one shot at this life. And I said, I would like to be here and experience some more things. And I'm sure, I'm assuming you would like to. Also, so like I said, one of the biggest things I always talk about when it comes to like these true crime stories, like I said, sometimes there's just nothing that you can do, unfortunately. But there are some times out there, because some other cases we'll cover, where there was not necessarily the victim, but like a family member. A family member had a bad feeling about a boyfriend, had a bad feeling about the husband, but just believed that things like that don't happen to them. We all say that. I say it myself. Oh, these things I see on the news would never happen in where I live or to me or to my family members. But you can't. That's just not the way you can. You have, you live. You have to stay alert, stay alive, and basically said, do what you can. Just always trust your instinct and just try to fight and live to see another day. Like I said, I know that sounds super depressing. I, I I made this podcast for laughs and for a good time. And this is definitely probably, I would have to say, the most serious episode. But that's life. Like I said, amongst these conspiracy theories, amongst these unsolved mysteries, there's actually bad things happening in this world. And you should be doing whatever you can to make sure that that may not happen to you. So like I said, you're probably going to leave this like, man, that's depressing. Man, that's miserable. Man, that's sad. But like I said, it is life. It's not all rainbows. Some of these things like this are happening all the time. So just do what you can. Do your part. Protect yourself. Protect your family. That is all I got for today. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. It's definitely a topic I don't think a lot of people know about of this specific story. So hopefully you learned something new. Got um very interesting topic as always you can follow me on twitter at underscore patrick simpson i say it every week and i really mean it really enjoy the engagement i love tag you tagging me in things sending me things giving me ideas like people give me ideas like every day and even though i may have not have done an episode on something you've suggested to me it's on my list i'm doing research i'm trying to cover as much as i can please keep it up i really appreciate it if you haven't subscribed yet, of course, go ahead and press that button real quick. Things are, a lot of different new changes are coming, so be sure to get the episodes as soon as they drop. If you're on iTunes, appreciate it. Just take a quick second and leave an honest review. 
things are about to start growing, I'm assuming, with YouTube and all the other things that I'm about to do. So if people go to the podcast, they don't want to just listen to what I think of the podcast. They want to know what the people that listen have to say. So I appreciate you take a quick second to leave a review of what you think. And we'll be back next Monday with a very new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranormal.